All right, so our scripture text this morning is really just one verse, uh, and you can find it on page 1127 of the Bibles that are in the chair racks if you don't have a Bible with you. It's John chapter 1, verse 14. That's the verse. But it is a verse, uh, when you look at it, uh, that begins with a conjunction. A, connect, a conjunction. Kids, I know we've been out of school a whole two days probably, like, but a conjunction is what? A conjunction is what kind of word? It's a joining word. It's a word that joins a, uh, a sentence or a part of a sentence with something else. And that's what the word and is. And this is a connecting thought, which is why I want to go back before I read this morning's text, verse 14, that begins with a conjunction. I want to go back and I want to read verses 1 to 5 because that's what it's connecting to. Now, there's other stuff between 6 and 13 that we talked about last week too. But really, I think if we read verses 1 to 5 and then we go to verse 14, you'll see how it connects together, or at least that's the the goal. So let me ask you to stand if you're able as I read this. Again, first I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, kind of as a running start, and then this morning's text, verse 14. All right, here we go. John's Gospel, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, so that's the, that's the running start, right? In the beginning was the Word, verse 14, and the Word, that Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. So each night when my, uh, when my children were young, I would ask them the, uh, the opening questions to the children's catechism, right? Kids, you might remember uh, these opening questions to the children's catechism. They're useful for all of us, really. They, they go like this. I would ask, who made you? And they would answer, God. And I would say, what else did God make? And they would answer, all things. And the third question, and why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. Now, glory, that's a word that we use a lot. We use a lot, a lot this time of year in connection with the, the Christmas story, right? The angels appeared to the shepherds in the field, and what did they say? Glory to God in the, in the highest. And it's a word that we often sing in the songs that we say, angels from the realms of glory. Right? Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Glory. Now, what is Glory. It's a word we use a lot. What does it mean? Well, it refers to, to a very high honor, a very high distinction that's placed on someone or, or something. But it's usually reserved, when we use it in common language, for something big, like really big. I mean, we can praise our children, we can honor our parents, but when we say something is glorious, right, would we invoke this sense of magnificence, this awe-inspiring splendor when we use the word glory, something that's transcendent. Now this text, this verse 14 here, this is the message and the meaning of Christmas in, in one verse. Maybe the most complete summary verse in the Bible about Christmas. If you were looking for just one verse, this would probably be it. And what I want to do this morning is I want to make sure that before you leave, you have a very clear understanding of this verse. Because if someone were to ask you today or tonight or tomorrow or this week what Christmas is all about then I think that you could be able to tell him, tell them right from this verse the good news of Christmas in just one sentence. The good news of Christmas, that the eternal God became a man to live among 
his people in order to display the glory of his grace and truth, right? That's what verse 14 says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through this verse, phrase by phrase, and review the good news of Christmas in, in five parts. The word became flesh to dwell among us, displaying glory full of grace and truth. Right? The word became flesh to dwell among us, displaying glory full of grace and truth. Let's start with the word because that's what, that's what verse 1 started with and that's the context of, of why verses 1 to 5 is really helpful. Now we talked about it last week, but let's review. Let's review this concept of the word because if we're going to understand verse 14 and what happened to the word, then we really need to make sure we understand again who this word is because remember John was appealing to both a Jewish and a Greek reader when he used this term here. To the Jewish reader, the word was the revelation of God. It's how God disclosed himself through his word. Now, to the Greek, the logos, which is the Greek word for word, the logos was a philosophical term that referred to life's ultimate reason, life's ultimate answer. And if you return and you go back to verses 1 to 5, you see how this word is defined. Right? What does it say? It says the word was in the beginning, right? Which means that the word is, 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 is eternal, pre-existing before all things were, were made, right? We see that the word was with God, meaning that the, the word in, in some manner is, is a distinct person from God, at least God the Father, as we kind of understand it in, in our Trinitarian terms and Christianity as it sort of uh, put a theological understanding around this. But you see, okay, okay, so the word was eternal. The word was there at the beginning. And the word is, in some sense, distinct from, a distinct person from God. But the word, it says, also was God. Okay, so distinct, but the same at the same time. That while the word was a distinct person, this eternal word is simultaneously God himself. And through the word, it says in verse 3, all things were made, meaning that the word was not only there at creation, the word was the instrument, the means of creation. We also see that the word was not only in the beginning with God, God himself, and the instrument of creation, but that this word, verses 4 and 5, is the light and the life. He's the salvation that the Jews were waiting for, the illumination, the understanding for which the, the Greeks were we're seeking he's the answer he's the total package he's the reason and the purpose that all things came to be and the reason and the purpose that all things hang together right that's what we're told about the word in verses one to five and it's to this word that john then returns in verse 14 when he says when you get there right and this this makes it impossible to keep the word as just some philosophical abstract context right some cosmic principle because when you get to verse 14 it's now clear that that word is a person and that person right move to point number two became flesh that's the miracle of christmas and and the the, the verb that's translated be, became is in a uh, it's in a greek tense which means that the action takes place has taken place at a definite point in time it's not just some abstract, at a definite point in time, this has happened. The word became flesh. It happened at a specific place, in a specific time, right? The miracle didn't happen on 34th Street, right? It happened in a small town called Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem. And the miracle didn't happen over and over again every time a bell rings. No, it happened at a specific time 
when Augustus was Caesar in Rome, when Quirinius was governor in Syria, when Herod was the puppet king of Judea at that time. Now, those are all details that we learn in, in Luke's gospel, but John summarizes it here in perfect economy, four simple words, the word became flesh. And, and the way that he puts that, the, the terminology that he uses, became flesh, makes, it leaves absolutely no room for confusion about what's happening here. John Murray, a commentator, a theologian um, early in the 20th century, says that the flesh is a rather blunt way of referring to humanity. That term, it's a, it's a blunt way. D.A. Carson, a, a more recent New Testament scholar, says that his word choice, John's word choice, in using this word flesh, it is unambiguous, almost shocking. Now, kids, there's your word for the day. You looking for your word for the day? Probably not, but here it is, right? Unambiguous. What does unambiguous mean? Here's your word of the day. It's free, right? It means that it's so clear that you can't misunderstand it. That's what unambiguous means. And it's that kind of clarity of what John is saying that would have been shocking. The word became flesh. Most Jews would have expected a Messiah who was a great leader, who was a prophet, right? Would have expected a leader who was, who was flesh, right? Maybe with God's anointing, but not God himself. So the fact that the flesh was the eternal word, that would have been shocking. Now, the Greeks, the Romans, on the other hand, they had gods who would occasionally sort of wander among people in human form, but they never actually would become fully human. They would never take on flesh, if you will, because to the Greek and the Roman mind, the flesh was, was dirty. The matter of this world was not something that you got yourself wrapped up in. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. He was the eternal word who became flesh. He became human. Okay, so, so good so far. The word became flesh. Next phrase, why did he come? To dwell among us. Anyone ever read The Prince and the Pauper? Mark Twain's book. It's not as famous as Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, but it's, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty well known. The Prince and the Pauper. It's a story um, of two young boys who look almost exactly alike. One is the, the Prince of Wales and his father is the King of England. The other is a poor peasant, a pauper, right? Means he's poor, poor, uh, whose father is an abusive alcoholic, right? So you've got one, prince, father, king of England, one, uh, poor, um, a father is abusive alcoholic. And the two meet and they decide to switch places. I'm simplifying, but that's basically what happens. To, to sort of see how the other lives and to have a little bit of, uh, of fun with the matter. Now, this is a common theme, a common motif, as the, you know, the literary people kind of like to say, right? It's a common theme. Throughout literature, throughout movies, you've got uh, the king, uh, or, or a god of some kind, or maybe just someone who's really rich, and they decide to, you know, to take a, a turn living among the common folk. And to just, you know, see what it's, see what it's like, an exercise in, in curiosity, very common literary motif. That is not what Jesus is doing at Christmas. He's not just taking a, a, a tour out of curiosity to see how the people live. Right? No, this is not a, an exercise in curiosity for the Prince of Heaven. And you get that from this word, dwelt. Right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, it's common, you may have heard this before, it's common to hear preachers point out that this word dwelt literally means to pitch a tent, to, to, to pitch a tent. So the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. But I want to keep pushing a little bit the significance of what that means because it's the word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that talks about the tabernacle. Right, so in some sense, one might be able to literally say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so we need to understand a little bit of what was this tabernacle. 
Well, the tabernacle was the elaborate complex of tents for worship that God instructed the Israelites to to build when they were saved from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of slavery and he said, you're going to worship me and this is how I want you to do it. And and it was portable. It could be taken down, but that's that's how it functioned before the temple was, was permanently built in Jerusalem. And the instructions for the tabernacle that God gave to Moses for the people are very extensive. You can go through Exodus chapter 25, 26, 27, three chapters, really detailed instructions about the construction of this tabernacle. And the purpose of the tabernacle summarized in Exodus 25, verse 8, right, where he says to Moses, let them, talking about the people of Israel, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That was God's purpose. The tabernacle was not just like a fancy city hall where they could kind of gather for important civic functions. The tabernacle was where God was going to dwell with his people. Now come back to John chapter 1. That's what Jesus did. He pitched his tent. He tabernacled among his people. He came to dwell in their midst. The writer of, uh, of the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 11, of this New Testament letter, makes the connection very, very clear, right, so that we can understand it. He says that when Christ appeared and when he took on a, a body, when he took on flesh, right, Hebrews chapter, 11, uh, chapter 9, verse 11, that this body was the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, right? So Christmas is God come to dwell with his people in the tent, a tent of flesh. The human person of Jesus is the tabernacle of God, the means by which God will dwell among his people. But there's more, right? The tent of flesh by which the word dwells among us is so that we can see his glory. That's the fourth section of this verse, right? Displaying glory. Now, we're back to where we started. Remember talking about glory? Glory is something uh, magnificent, a sense of awe-inspiring splendor that points us to something big, something transcendent, being in the presence of something bigger than yourself, right? And that's what the tent is for the incarnation of Jesus. That's the purpose of the flesh that Jesus assumed, right? In the, in the prince and the, and the pauper, the prince puts on peasant clothes so that he can mask his glory, so that he can, uh, so can kind of hide it from people, Jesus uses the peasant clothes, his tent, on the other hand, as a vehicle to bring the glory down, to display his glory. See, when the tabernacle was constructed after the Exodus, according to all of God's detailed plans, this is what you read in Exodus chapter 40. After it's all done, it says at the end of Exodus 40, verse 33, so Moses finished the work, and then it says in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tent, right? The tent wasn't to hide the glory. The tent was the place where the glory was going to be displayed, where the glory could reside. Same thing happened in the temple when the temple was ultimately built. First Kings 8, 11, right? Cloud filled the house of the Lord, and that cloud is often referred to as God's Shekinah, his Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of God's presence among his people and that's what Christmas is it's the enfleshing of God's Shekinah glory the tenting of it right God's presence with his people not to hide God's glory in the tently body of Jesus but to put that glory on display and what do we see right when it's on display 
What do we see? Well, we see that this glory, last point, is full of grace and truth. Now, there's some debate among the scholars on the grammar here and the which word that this phrase, full of grace and truth, what it, what it refers to, what it modifies. In the end, it doesn't really change the, the, the ultimate meaning that you take, but I, I think D.A. Carson's position is persuasive to take this phrase, full of grace and truth, and understand it as referring to, as modifying glory, right? In other words, you think of it as kind of saying this, the glory of God was full of grace and truth. What was full of grace and truth? The glory of God was. The glory of God displayed in the tented word was full of grace and truth. Now, and what this does is this echoes a phrase, right, grace and truth, echoes a phrase that that occurred throughout the Hebrew Scriptures over and over again. Another pairing of words that talks about God's glory. And again, go back to Exodus to see the most clear display of this or understanding of this. Exodus 34, verses 5, 6, and 7, right? You might remember the scene. Moses asks God, if he can see his glory. He says, God, can I, can I see your glory? I want to see your glory. Please show me your glory. And God basically says, you can't handle my glory. <laughs> not, a, not a full frontal view of my glory, right? But what I'll do is this, God says. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And after my, as my glory passes by, I'll remove the, uh, the veil. I'll remove the covering. And you can catch a glimpse of the backside of my Glory, And of course, he's not punishing Moses by, by doing this. This is protection. A full view, a full exposure to God's glory would be way too much for, for Moses. Well, anyway, this is what happens. The Lord passes by, and as he does this, this is Exodus 34, 6, the Lord announces himself. His glory passes by, and God makes an announcement that sort of describes his glory. And this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. And that pair of words, steadfast love, which is just one word in the Hebrew, steadfast love and faithfulness that define God's glory, that pairing of words is the, is the very same concept, the very same idea about God's glory that John is trying to communicate in verse 14 when he says the glory of God was full of grace and truth. Right? God's steadfast love, that's his chesed love, his gracious covenant love. God abounds in this. In other words, God is filled with grace. The glory of God is filled with grace. And his faithfulness is his perfect consistency, his unchanging character, the good news that God can't be swayed, he can't be deterred, he can't be distracted. Exodus 34, God announces and says, I am filled with this, with faithfulness. In other words, the Lord and his glory is filled with truth, as John would put it. Right? So in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In John 1, verse 14, the glory of the Son, full of grace and truth. This is what the glory of God is. And this is certainly good news, that God has decided to bring this glory, full of grace and truth, to dwell among us. But in this phrase, and for the very first time, you start to see a little bit of the of the tension because we need both of these things to be true we need him to be full of grace and to be full of truth we need it at the same time because without the the glory of God's mercy his covenant grace then we are actually condemned by the glory of God's truth I think about this in other words the glory of God's truth right actually can be a problem for us because God's truth calls us out 
Right? His perfect consistency, his perfect faithfulness to his character highlights us in relief as not matching that, as not measuring up to it. In other words, God's truth actually condemns us, if not combined also with his grace. And you see this, right, that this is a problem for God dwelling among his people, his glory coming to tabernacle among, tabernacle among his people. Go back to Exodus again in Exodus 40, right? The tabernacle is completed. Remember, the glory of God fills the, the, the tabernacle, it says in verse 34. Well, verse 35 keeps going, and it says, Moses was now, because the glory of the Lord has come down into the, into the tabernacle, it says Moses was not able to enter the tent because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that's great, the glory of the Lord is now with us, but Moses can't go in, can't be in the presence of the glory. Same thing happens when the temple is, fil- is finished. 1 Kings chapter 8, this is what it says in verses 10 to 11. Cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to go to minister because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so this is good news. The glory of the Lord has come down to dwell in our midst. This is wonderful. He's tabernacled here in the tent of meeting, in the temple. But now we can't go in. We can't be in the presence of the glory. In both cases, the Shekinah glory chases away the people. The very people, the glory is intended to dwell among. Why? Because the glory is filled with truth. A truth that when, when we look at it and understand it, highlights our sin and that truth it will condemn us unless the glory is also filled with grace and it is it is a glory of grace but you need to see how right because before the tabernacle was even constructed before they even got that far you might remember the people of God rebelled against God in the wilderness (laughs) In, in a sense they attempted this was the essence of their sin they attempted to make their own tent to make their own tabernacle. This is what they did, right? They constructed an image of God, right? They made a statue of a calf out of gold, out of gold, a baby cow, right? And a young cow. And they said, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to make this calf. And then they said, behold, the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, here he is, this calf. In other words, they built their own tent. They said, God, we would like you to dwell in this tent. This is the tent that we would like you to, to take. They formed their own image, of the glory of God. But God will not. He, he, he won't inhabit the tents of our making. Right? That is rebellion of the highest order when we attempt to do that. And God got angry, righteously angry, angry with complete justification. But here's the thing. He was never, even in that anger, never without a plan of mercy because he had a plan to deal with all this. In Exodus chapter 33, it says that Moses uh, would take a tent um, that was called the tent of meeting. And it was in this tent that, God would, that Moses would go as the mediator of God's people to meet with God. And it was in this tent, as God, as God was, was, was in the midst of his righteous anger, that Moses goes in to meet with God in a planned drama a planned uh, interaction between the two of them that is was intended to symbolize something much greater and point to the mercy and the grace that fills the glory of of god right what moses did in this tent after the rebellion of god's people constructing their own tent of the the golden calf what he did was he goes in and and he pleads on behalf of the people 
He enters into the tent and he meets with God and he pleads with God not to abandon the promise that he had made to be with his people. Go with us. Please go with us. Do not abandon your people, your promise to dwell among your people. He even offered in chapter 32 to take the place of the people. He said, look, if you've got to blot someone out, take me. Blot me out of your book so that you can continue to be with your people. Now, of course, the sacrifices of Moses, I mean, if it were just him, I mean, that couldn't purchase forgiveness for the people. Moses couldn't make atonement for sin. But what he was doing was pointing to the fact that atonement is necessary and that a sacrifice is exactly what's needed. That first tent of meeting, that tent, that tent where Moses met with God in Exodus chapter 33 in this sort of drama that happened then, this is not the ultimate tabernacle that ended up being constructed. This tent of meeting, this first one where Moses met with God and pleaded as the people's mediator on his behalf, this, this tent, this one was constructed outside of the camp way outside from the center of the camp why because the people of God had broken fellowship with God and so Moses went to mediate on behalf of the people in this tent of meeting on the outside of the camp now when the first when the tabernacle was ultimately constructed right that and 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 that's often referred to as the as the tent of meeting too but when the tabernacle in all of its description was completely Uh, constructed that was actually placed in the center of the camp right you move from the outside to the inside what's the difference how could that happen right when Moses met with God the tent had to be on the outside of the camp because of the sin of the people but when the when the tabernacle was ultimately constructed it was always at the center the temple was at the center why what happened in the in this final tent of me this tabernacle that's now constructed that didn't happen in this mediating tent that 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 Moses erected when when he when he pleaded with with God on behalf of the people what happens now in the tabernacle and in the temple what the sacrifices happen now (laughs) see that that's what brings the tent into the midst of God's people The fact that the sacrifices occur. That's the major difference. And so God's presence, his Shekinah glory, no less holy, is now able to come into the midst of God's people. It wasn't Moses that was sacrificed. And ultimately it isn't bulls and goats and lambs. It was a greater sacrifice, a greater Moses, a greater mediator, a greater sacrifice that would come. And that's what John is telling us about in John chapter 1 verse 14 full of grace and truth the glory is now able to dwell among God's people because the true mediator the true sacrifice is now here there's many senses in which John highlights the glory of Jesus in his gospel you kind of continue to read through John and you see it as a theme over and over again in his miracles and his signs it says Jesus displayed his his glory but the greatest display of Christ's glory is in his hour of sacrifice in John chapter 12, as Jesus begins the week where um, the final days of his life will, uh, will unfold, he says, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it isn't as if he, you know, he wasn't filled with glory up to this point, but this, all of that was pointing to this hour of glory, his ultimate sacrifice. Right? All up until this point in John chapter 12, Jesus would say over and over, my hour has not yet come. The hour hasn't arrived yet. Now he says, the hour is here. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. He tells his disciples at the Last Supper, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Now how cosmically ironic 
that this, the hour of Jesus' death, is the hour of greatest glory. Because it seems like this ought to be Jesus' ultimate, his, his, his death, his sacrifice. You would think that this would be the moment of shame, the moment of defeat, right? This isn't the moment of glory. That's why so many Jews didn't recognize him as Messiah, because Messiah, they thought, would lead them to victory, not defeat. That's why so many Greeks, why so many Romans didn't recognize him, because a king, they thought, would never suffer the indignity, the, the shame of the cross. But go back to John Murray. This is how he put it. It's in the cross of shame that we see manifested the true glory of Christ. And that is because the cross provides the sacrifice that brings the tent of God's presence into the presence of his people forever. Because Jesus suffered the shame of the cross on the outside of the city, right? As the cursed one. Because he did that, he is able to bring his glory into the midst of his people forever because a sacrifice once and finally and forever has now been made. Because the Son of God assumed a tent of flesh that he might offer that tent as a perfect atonement and payment for the rebellion of everyone who has put their faith and their trust in him. Have you done that? Have you put your faith and your trust in that Prince of Glory? The only Son of the Father, as John puts it, full of grace and truth. You must. You should. When you gaze into the love of a prince like that, in um, Prince and the Pauper, Mark Twain's novel, right? The prince uh, is completely unaware of the sufferings of his subjects. He's oblivious to it as he sits in the, in the palace. It isn't until he goes out and he lives among the people, among, the su- among his subjects, that he understands the great pain that's experienced by those living in his kingdom. And from that point forward, he resolves to use his power to to change things, right? That's the prince and the pauper. That's the fictional story. But in this story, in the true story, in the story that John is telling, the eternal prince, the prince of peace, he doesn't come to learn about the suffering of his subjects. He knows about the suffering of his subjects. He comes because he already knows and he's going to do something about it. And the way that he does something about it is to take the very penalty that they deserve. Even Mark Twain had some idea, some thought about this. He wanted his book, The Prince and the Pauper, to be a tool of social action. And he said, I want this to be a catalyst of change. And he said, my idea is to afford a realizing sense of the exceeding severity of the laws of that day by inflicting some of their penalties upon the king himself. Right? That was his literary device. He said, this is how I'm going to bring it to, to, the, to the attention of the authorities. I'm going to afflict the king with some of the very sufferings that the people are experiencing. And by those means, I'm going to bring about an alleviation of those suffering. Now, Twain didn't know what he was talking about, right? But, but he got enough of it, right? Because that is exactly the glory of the cross. But, 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 but rightly understood, the rightful king assumes those cruel penalties on himself, but the penalties are just, And the rightful king assumes not just some of them. He doesn't just take a taste of them. He takes them all. That's the glory of the cross. That's That's what we are seeing displayed in front of us. A glory that was displayed when the eternal word of God became flesh and took a tent so that he could take that tent and offer it as a perfect sacrifice. And here then is the place of our ultimate comfort, of our assurance at at Christmas in the in the glory of Christ. A scared young child calls out to his father in the middle of the night. 
And so I go into the room and I find that child sitting upright in bed, visibly upset. And I ask, are you scared? And the child's soft, quivering answer is, yes. So I fix the blanket and I kiss the cheek and I go to leave and I'm called back in with a question. Daddy, can you talk to me about glory? And I know what he, what's meant by the question because this is our nighttime routine. And so I whisper and we rehearse our lines. Who made you? God. And what else did God make? All things. And why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Another kiss and I leave and a small child goes back to sleep. There's no deep understanding of the theological implications of what we've just done. No knowledge of Hebrew words in the tabernacle. None of that. But in a moment of weakness, in a moment of fear, in a moment of need, a child has heard the affirmation of a loving father who tells him that he was made for a purpose by a God who has a plan, a plan for glory. Now, whether you are that child or another child, behold the beauty of Christmas that shows us that plan. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for blessing us with your glory and for providing us the means of being able to experience it. Something that we do not deserve because we have attempted to construct for ourselves what we want your glory to be like. Oh, Lord, forgive us for that, for trying to cast you in our image and let us rejoice instead in the greater thing that you have given to us, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to us in the person of Jesus and sacrifice for us on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin so that we might experience eternal glory. For we pray in his name. Amen.